Hey everyone, this is Ted O'Connell. Thank you for checking out the Med Prep to Go USMLE Step 3 podcast sample episodes. If you find that this audio content brings value to your studies, we encourage you to go to medpreptogo.com and check out the subscription podcast. You'll be able to see the entire content outline Dr. Raj Dasgupta and I put together, and you can subscribe if it looks like the audio content will help you succeed on USMLE Step 3. The podcast is completely ad-free and includes over 50 hours of high-yield material for the USMLE Step 3 exam. If you found this Step 3 podcast, there's a good chance you've listened to the Crush Step 1 or the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcasts, you've used our free question bank, or you've listened to Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls podcast. We hope that whatever you've used in the past has helped you with your studies. As you may know, the goals of MedPrep to Go are to allow you to study on the go to get time back in your day and also to help cut the costs of medical education. We think we've priced the Step 3 podcast very competitively to bring you a great product while allowing us to cover the costs of putting this together and keep it hosted without ads. So thank you for checking this out and for your ongoing engagement with our content. In this section, we're going to cover anemias and cytopenias and how to approach the workup of each. So for anemia, it's typically defined as a hemoglobin of less than 12 milligrams per deciliter in women or less than 14 milligrams per deciliter in men. Classic symptoms of anemia include fatigue, dyspnea on exertion, lightheadedness, syncope, palpitations, angina, and claudication. Signs include tachycardia, pallor, systolic ejection murmurs, which occur from heightened blood flow, as well as signs of the underlying cause of the anemia, such as jaundice in hemolytic anemia, positive stool guaiac tests in the case of gastrointestinal bleeds. When approaching the history Think about medications that are classically involved with anemia, and we'll cover those more in just a moment. Think about blood loss from surgery, from blood in the stools, from menorrhagia, or even hematemesis. You want to think about chronic diseases, which can present as anemia of chronic disease. Family history is really important, so thinking about thalassemias, sickle cell disease, G6 PD, etc. And then also thinking about alcohol abuse, which can lead to deficiencies in iron, folate, and B12, and can also lead to GI bleeding. In the setting of acute blood loss, remember that the hemoglobin may initially be normal because it takes at least three to four hours and sometimes more for reequilibration to occur. When evaluating a patient, you want to look for obvious signs of bleeding. You may see that the patient has a tachycardia, which is often the first sign of anemia. They may have pale and cold skin, and they may be hypotensive. You may need to transfuse a patient with acute blood loss, especially if it's a truly acute bleed, even with a normal hemoglobin, because remember, it may take several hours for that re-equilibration to occur, and you don't want to get behind in terms of what the patient's needs are. 
if you have a uh, patient who has had trauma or potentially has an abdominal aortic aneurysm, consider the possibility of internal hemorrhage when you're evaluating a patient who has an acute anemia. And if there's concern, you can consider an evaluation in the emergency department with a FAST exam, which is a focused assessment with sonography in trauma. Many different medications can cause anemia through a variety of mechanisms. Methyl dopa, penicillins, and sulfa drugs can cause red blood cell antibodies with subsequent hemolysis. Chloroquine and sulfa drugs cause hemolysis in patients with G6PD. Phenytoin causes megaloblastic anemia through interference with folate metabolism. And chloramphenicol, cancer medications, and zidovudine cause aplastic anemia and bone marrow suppression. If you're presented with a patient on the USMLE Step 3 who's potentially anemic, the first thing you want to order is a complete blood count, or CBC, with red blood cell indices. The hemoglobin must be below normal to diagnose an anemia. The mean corpuscular volume, or MCV, tells you whether the anemia is microcytic, where the MCV is less than 80, normocytic, where the MCV is 80 to 100, or macrocytic, where the MCV is greater than 100. And figuring that out will put you down one of three paths in terms of evaluating the anemia. In many cases, you'll also want to order a peripheral blood smear because many classic findings can help you make the diagnosis. This is audio format, so each of the ones that we're going to talk about, you may want to get open up a book and look at images just so that you re-familiarize yourself with the various classic findings that can be fi- found on a peripheral smear. Um, but we'll talk through um, some of the main ones here. You want to look for sickled cells, which are seen in sickle cell disease, hypersegmented neutrophils, which can be seen with folate and B12 deficiency, hypochromic and microcytic red blood cells, which are seen in iron deficiency, basophilic stippling, which is an indicator of lead poisoning, bite cells, which are classically seen in G6PD deficiency, but also in other hemolytic anemias, Heinz bodies, which are seen in G6PD deficiency, Howell-Jolly bodies, which are seen in asplenia, schistocytes, helmet cells, and fragmented red blood cells, which are seen in intravascular hemolysis, spherocytes and elliptocytes, which are seen in hereditary spherocytosis and elliptocytosis, respectively, acanthocytes and spur cells, which are seen in A-beta-lipoproteinemia, target cells, which are seen in thalassemia and liver disease, echinocytes, including Burr cells and acanthocytes, which are seen in uremia and liver disease, polychromasia, which is from reticulocytosis and should alert you to the possibility of hemolysis, Rouleau formation, which can be seen in multiple myeloma. Parasites inside the red blood cells, which can be seen in malaria and babesiosis. Iron inclusions, which are ringed sideroblasts 
in red blood cells of the bone marrow, which are seen in sideroblastic anemia. And so if you have a good sense of these abnormal findings on peripheral blood smear, it may be an indicator of the correct answer to a USMLE step three question. Remember that reticulocytes are immature red blood cells. If their count is abnormally decreased in the setting of anemia, the bone marrow is not responding properly and thus is most likely the site of the problem. A high reticulocyte count should make you think of hemolysis or blood loss as the cause of the anemia, and the marrow is responding properly and is not the problem. So at this point in the evaluation of an anemia, you should have a good history as well as results of the CBC with the red blood cell indices, peripheral smear, and reticulocyte count. And so you may be able to eliminate a number of possibilities as the cause of the anemia, and you may be able to order a confirmatory test. If the answer is still not clear from the data that you have, a bone marrow biopsy is often the next step. Although on the USMLE step three, a biopsy is unlikely to be necessary unless a malignancy is potentially the cause of the anemia. So now let's talk a little bit more detail about microcytic, normocytic, and macrocytic anemia, because these really will take you down one of several paths in terms of trying to figure out um, what the cause of the anemia is. And so you want to figure out what the MCV is and then also look at the reticulocyte count because that will be a real key in figuring this out. So if you have a microcytic anemia with a low reticulocyte count, think about lead poisoning, sideroblastic anemia, anemia of chronic disease, and iron deficiency. If you have a microcytic anemia with a normal or elevated reticulocyte count, think about thalassemia and hemoglobinopathy, like sickle cell disease. If you have a normocytic anemia with a low reticulocyte count, think of cancers and dysplasias, like acute leukemia and myelophysic anemia. You also want to think about some cases of anemia of chronic disease. You want to think about medications causing aplastic anemia as a result of bone marrow suppression. You want to think about endocrine failure, especially of the thyroid and pituitary glands, and also of renal failure. If you have a normocytic anemia with a normal or elevated reticulocyte count, think of acute blood loss, hemolysis, and medications resulting in antibodies against red blood cells. And then finally, with macrocytic anemias, all of these have low reticulocyte counts. But you want to think about folate deficiency, vitamin B12 deficiency, medications such as methotrexate and phenytoin, alcohol abuse, which interferes with folate metabolism, and cirrhosis and other liver diseases. If you're thinking about hemolysis as a cause for anemia, there are a number of clues that are likely to show up on the USMLE Step 3. Look for an elevated LDH, an elevated bilirubin, and this will be unconjugated as well as conjugated if the liver is functioning properly jaundice on physical examination, a low or absent haptoglobin, which is only present with intravascular hemolysis, and also urobilinogen, bilirubin, and 
hemoglobin in the urine. Only conjugated bilirubin shows up in the urine. And hemoglobin shows up in the urine only when haptoglobin has been saturated, as in brisk intravascular hemolysis. In the United States, iron deficiency anemia is the most common cause of anemia. Iron deficiency is common in women of reproductive age because of menstrual blood loss. In all patients over the age of 40 years, it's important to rule out colon cancer as a cause of chronic asymptomatic blood loss. Increased requirements may also lead to iron deficiency in children and pregnant or breastfeeding women. Now, this next statement is a little bit of an aside and veers into pediatrics, but it is important as it relates to anemia. You want to give iron-containing formula or iron supplements to all infants except full-term infants who are exclusively breastfed. Start iron supplementation in the form of an iron-fortified cereal or a daily iron supplement at four to six months for full-term infants and at two months for preterm infants. Remember that giving cow's milk before one year of age may lead to anemia by causing GI bleeding, so avoidance of cow's milk in the first year is essential. Iron supplements are also commonly given during pregnancy and lactation because of the increased demand. If you're evaluating an anemia and are thinking it's an iron deficiency anemia, look for low iron and low ferritin levels. Elevated total iron binding capacity, or TIBC, which is also known as transferrin, and a low TIBC saturation. If you do diagnose an iron deficiency, it's important to first determine the cause of the iron deficiency. In menstruating women, a presumptive diagnosis of menstrual blood loss is often made. But in patients over 40 years of age, remember to test the stool for occult blood and also strongly consider doing a colonoscopy to detect colon cancer. Postmenopausal vaginal bleeding may also cause anemia and warrants screening for gynecologic cancers. The iron deficiency can be treated with iron supplements for three to six months in uncomplicated cases that are not the result of an underlying malignancy, and this three to six months of iron supplementation should adequately replete body iron stores. If you're considering anemia of chronic disease, look for the presence of a disease that causes chronic inflammation, diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, cancers, and tuberculosis. Anemia of chronic disease is either normocytic or microcytic. Serum iron is low, but so is total iron binding capacity. Thus, the percent saturation may be normal. Serum ferritin typically is elevated because ferritin is an acute phase reactant. Treat the underlying disorder to correct the anemia. Iron is not given because this can lead to iron overload. If thalassemia is being considered as a cause of anemia, the diagnosis is made with a hemoglobin electrophoresis. There are four gene loci for the alpha chain of hemoglobin, but only two for the beta chain. Patients with four affected loci produce no alpha globulin and die in utero as a result of hydrops fetalis, while patients with three affected loci, 
hemoglobin H are symptomatic at birth or early childhood. Patients with beta thalassemia are not symptomatic until six months of age. No treatment is required for minor thalassemia. Patients are often asymptomatic because they are used to living with a lower level of hemoglobin. Thalassemia major is more symptomatic and severe. This is treated with transfusions as needed and iron chelation therapy to prevent secondary hemochromatosis. If sickle cell disease is the cause of an anemia, there are typically two clues that will show up on the step three exam. These are a peripheral blood smear and race. 8% of blacks are heterozygous for the sickle cell trait. And so it's important to think about that and also knowing what sickled red blood cells look like on a peripheral smear. These patients will usually have a higher percentage of reticulocytes in the range of 8 to 20%. Manifestations and complications of sickle cell disease include aplastic crisis due to parvovirus B19 infection, bone pain due to infarcts, and the classic example is avascular necrosis of the femoral head, dactylitis, splenic sequestration crisis, renal papillary necrosis, autosplenectomy, and remember, these patients are at increased risk with encapsulated bugs such as pneumococcus, haemophilus, and Neisseria species, acute chest syndrome, which can mimic pneumonia, pigment cholelithiasis, priapism, and stroke. Diagnosis of sickle cell disease is made by hemoglobin electrophoresis. Screening is done at birth, but symptoms usually do not appear until about six months of age because of the lack of adult hemoglobin production. These patients should be treated with prophylactic penicillin until at least five years of age and perhaps longer beginning as soon as the diagnosis is made. Remember that proper vaccination includes the pneumococcal, meningococcal, and H-influenza type B vaccines, which are given to all children anyway, but these protect against the encapsulated bugs. And it's also important to remember yearly influenza vaccination. Other treatment strategies include folate supplementation, early treatment of all infections, and adequate hydration. A sickle cell crisis involves severe pain in various sites due to red blood cell sickling. This is treated with oxygen, copious intravenous fluids, and analgesia. And really, remember, don't be afraid to adequately treat the pain, even if this involves opioids. Consider transfusions if the symptoms and or findings are severe. Now let's talk about autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and we'll review the commonly tested causes of autoimmune hemolytic anemia. You want to think about systemic lupus erythematosus or medications that cause lupus-like syndromes such as procainamide, hydralazine, and isoniazid, and also think about other autoimmune disorders. You want to think about medications causing autoimmune hemolytic anemia. The classic example is methyl dopa, but penicillins, cephalosporins, sulfa drugs, and quinidine have also been implicated. 
You want to think about leukemia or lymphoma. And then finally, think about infections such as mycoplasma, Epstein-Barr virus, and syphilis. The Coombs test is positive in most autoimmune anemias. You may also see spherocytes on a peripheral blood smear because of incomplete macrophage destruction. This is extravascular hemolysis of red blood cells. Lead poisoning causes a hypochromic microcytic anemia, typically seen in children. With acute lead poisoning, look for colicky abdominal pain, vomiting, irritability, ataxia, encephalopathy, cerebral edema, or seizures. In most cases, though, lead poisoning is chronic and low level with minimal nonspecific symptoms. Remember the classic basophilic stippling on peripheral smear, and you may also see elevated free erythrocyte protoporphyrin or lead level. And then in the history on the USMLE, consider risk factors for lead exposure, like a child who lives in an older home and may be eating paint chips, someone who lives in an old rundown building, or those who live near battery recycling facilities. In the past, all asymptomatic children were screened with a serum lead level at one to two years of age, regardless of risk, though this has become a bit controversial. In all children with risk factors, it is important to do screening because chronic low-level exposure to lead may lead to permanent neurologic sequelae. Screening should start at six months in children with risk factors, such as living in old buildings that may have lead paint, or as mentioned previously, living near or having family members who work at a lead smelting or battery recycling plant. You want to screen and measure symptomatic exposure with serum lead levels. If lead poisoning is identified, you want to treat initially by decreasing the exposure whenever possible, as well as doing lead chelation therapy if needed. This is done with succimer in children and dimercaprol in adults. In severe cases, use dimercaprol plus ethyl anedidamine tetraacetic acid, which is EDTA, for children or adults. Now let's talk about sideroblastic anemia. The typical description on the USMLE Step 3 is a microcytic hypochromic anemia with increased or normal iron, ferritin, and TIBC. If you see this description, it should immediately steer you away from iron deficiency. Look for polychromatophilic stippling and the classic ringed sideroblasts in bone marrow. Sideroblastic anemia may be related to myelodysplasia or the potential for future blood dyscrasia. Although you'll probably be not asked about management, treatment is supportive. In rare cases, the anemia responds to pyridoxine. You don't want to give iron for sideroblastic anemia because of the risk of secondary hemochromocytosis. Let's talk about spherocytosis. So this is a normochromic, normocytic anemia associated with spherocytes on peripheral blood smear. You'll also want to look for a positive family history because this is autosomal dominant. 
and look for things like splenomegaly, positive osmotic fragility test, and an increased mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration. This is the only occasion on which this red blood cell index is useful for the step three exam. Treatment of spherocytosis often involves splenectomy. Spherocytes may also be seen in extravascular hemolysis, but the osmotic fragility test is normal if it's extravascular hemolysis. Remember that patients with chronic kidney disease develop a normocytic normochromic anemia with decreased reticulocyte count due to decreased erythropoietin production. If necessary, erythropoietin can be given to correct the anemia. Now let's talk about aplastic anemia. On the USMLE Step 3 exam, you want to watch for chemotherapy, radiation, and malignancies affecting the bone marrow, especially leukemias. Also think about benzene and potential for medication causing it. And remember, chloramphenicol, carbamazepine, sulfa drugs, zidovudine, and gold are the classic culprits. Decreased white blood cells and platelets accompany the anemia when aplastic anemia occurs. You want to treat this first by stopping and removing any causative medications and then try an antithymocyte globulin and colony-stimulating factors such as erythropoietin, sargramostin, filgrostim, or pegfilgrostim, and if needed, potentially bone marrow transplantation. Myelophysic anemia is due to a space-occupying lesion in the bone marrow. The common causes are malignant invasion that destroys the bone marrow and myelodysplasia or myelofibrosis. On the peripheral smear, looked for marked anisocytosis, different size, poikilocytosis, different shape, nucleated red blood cells, and giant and or bizarre looking platelets, and also look for teardrop-shaped red blood cells. A bone marrow biopsy may reveal no cells or malignant-looking cells. G6PD deficiency is a genetic disorder that is X-linked recessive affecting males. It's most common in blacks and Mediterraneans. Look for sudden hemolysis or anemia after exposure to fava beans or certain drugs like antimalarials, sulfa drugs, or salicylates and it can also occur after infection. You may see Heinz bodies and bite cells on peripheral smear. The diagnosis is made with a red blood cell enzyme assay, which should not be done immediately after hemolysis because of the potential for a false negative result. All of the older red blood cells already have been destroyed, and the younger red blood cells are not affected in most patients. G6PD deficiency is treated with avoidance of precipitating foods and medications and discontinuing the triggering medication if one is identified. There are numerous other causes of anemia that you want to be aware of and potentially think about. Endocrine failure, especially of the pituitary and thyroid glands, may cause this. And so in the history, you want to be looking for endocrine symptoms. Mechanical heart valves can cause 
hemolyzed red blood cells, disseminated intravascular coagulation, DIC, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, TTP, and hemolytic uremic syndrome can all cause anemia. With hemolytic uremic syndrome, look for schistocytes and red blood cell fragments on the peripheral smear. Clostridium perfringens infection, malaria, and babesiosis can all cause anemia. And hypersplenism associated with splenomegaly and often low platelets and white blood cells can cause anemia. When considering transfusion, you really want to observe symptoms and basis on clinical grounds, not necessarily a lab value. That being said, hemoglobin levels less than 7 grams per deciliter are typically an indication for transfusion, and a level below 8 is considered a typical indication for transfusion in those who have cardiac disease. So now let's switch from the anemias and talk about thrombocytopenia. Common causes of thrombocytopenia include idiopathic or thrombotic purpura, hemolytic uremic syndrome, DIC, HIV infection, splenic sequestration, heparin, including heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and other medications, especially quinidine and sulfa drugs. It can also be caused by autoimmune disease and alcohol. Bleeding from thrombocytopenia occurs in the form of petechiae, nosebleeds, and easy bruising. Now we're going to discuss the main differences between thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, TTP, and idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, ITP. So in terms of most common age, for TTP, it's young adults, and ITP can occur in children or adults. With TTP, there is no history of previous infection. ITP can be triggered by viral infections, especially in children. Red blood cell count is low in TTP and normal in ITP. Platelet count is low in both TTP and ITP. Peripheral blood smear shows hemolysis in TTP, but is normal in ITP. The kidney is affected in TTP, resulting in acute kidney injury and the presence of proteinuria, but there's no effect on the kidney in ITP. The treatment of TTP is plasmapheresis and NSAIDs, but no platelet transfusion. Treatment of ITP is with steroids and splenectomy if medications fail. And then the key differentiating points between TTP and ITP. With TTP, there's often central nervous system changes, and then there is the age difference, again, typically affecting young adults. And with ITP, you want to be looking for antiplatelet antibodies.